Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good men and women around the world who want to make a difference. The engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed, but the only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This week's episode is not being presented in the way that we had planned. I've mentioned for the last few weeks that Mike and I are both going to be at CrimeCon from June 9th through 11th. And this episode, of course, is airing on June 11th. So in order for us to get out of the office early, we had to do a lot of recording ahead of time. Well, this episode that you're about to hear today was not planned. I was talking to a friend of the show, Jim Clemente, a couple of weeks ago, and he told me that he's going to be releasing a new podcast during the weekend of CrimeCon. I was really interested in it, and I asked him if he would come on the show and we could talk a little bit about it to promote it on this week's Friday follow-up, which all of you heard just two days ago. But once I got Jim on the phone, we started talking about the case. So what had happened was, our pre-interview discussion turned into an hour-long interview and essentially a follow-up profile from Jim's original preliminary profile. During the conversation, we even got into discussing Edward Aid's case at one point. So by the time we were all done, we had nearly an hour-long interview that was packed full of great information, great questions and answers by Jim. So that's going to be this week's episode, which has worked out great because this actually freed me up to be able to spend the entire weekend at CrimeCon rather than just one day. And hopefully I got to see a lot of you there. So without further ado, we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors and get right into Jim Clemente's interview. Today's episode is sponsored in part by Stamps.com. Holy moly, have I had a lot of mailing to do in the last two weeks. Mike and I have had to send a lot of packages out this week. And thank goodness we have Stamps.com. Because Stamps saves you time and money, which you can use to grow your business. We can mail any letter, any package, using just our computers and printers, and the mailman picks it up and we're done. We avoid all the hassle of the post office and mail everything from postcards to envelopes to packages, domestic or international, right from our office. And you don't have to be some big business or a small business like us to use Stamps.com. You can just use this in your home, too. I mean, who likes driving across town and waiting in line at the post office just to pay for postage that you can now do right from your own home? Creating your account with Stamps is easy, it takes minutes online, and there's no equipment to lease and no long-term commitments. So then to mail those packages or letters, you just click Print Mail and you're done. They bring all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. Imagine if from your own home computer, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, using your own computer and printer. 
and Stamps makes this process super easy. They're going to send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage you need. No more guesswork. And there's no need to lease an expensive postage meter. I use Stamps.com because my time and money are important to me. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus postage, and a digital scale without long-term commitments. Just go to Stamps.com, you click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in TRUTH. That's Stamps.com. Enter TRUTH. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. So it's been about six weeks since we spoke with Jim, and he gave his initial profile of the murder of Kiao Gove. And at the end of that profile, there were a lot of unanswered questions. And since then, we have the answers to a lot of those questions. We also have some new information. We've spoken with Troy, and we've spoken with Shauna since then, and Tammy since then. Actually, there's been a lot of movement in the case since that day. So Jim has agreed to come back on the show. He hasn't been prepped on any of this, so uh, you'll be listening live as we're kind of filling Jim in and seeing what he thinks moving forward. But, Jim, thanks again for taking the time again to come back on the show with us. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Bob. You know how dedicated I am to helping you out because you're doing great work. Well, I appreciate that. And I guess we'll get right into it. So um, one of the questions that I know that you had at the end of your profile last last time, and we had hypothesized a little bit about the idea that Kiao may have um, been using her girdle to hide or conceal her knife uh, that she was carrying in her hand. Uh, and one thing, and I don't know if that makes much of a difference to you, but one thing that we have learned since then is that uh, that girdle, she wore that all the time. The quote from her husband was exactly that, that the girdle, quote, she always wore that. So I don't know if that makes much of a difference mm-hmm. as far as the concealing of the knife. We do have a little bit more on victimology from some close friends of hers. It seems that there was no financial issues at all. She seemed to have a very, very close relationship with her husband. Um, No one says a whole lot about her son, but just that she was very, very close with her husband. They did everything together. They had a wonderful relationship. You know, we know that they went walking together on a daily basis. Um, There's no life insurance that we're aware of or that anyone's aware of. As it turns out, just I don't even want to call this post-offense behavior, but just some behavior that I found really um, personally almost kind of touching is that the Kiao's husband, Kenneth, actually, until the day he died, got up every morning and walked the path around that school where Kiao was killed every single day. So that, that's, mm-hmm. just, that's just a little bit on victimology and Kenneth. I mean, does, does any of that so far, I guess I'll, I'll try to keep hitting pause and see what you think about any of that. Yeah, I mean, if she wore it all the time, then then it doesn't seem like that was specifically the reason why she wore it, to conceal a knife. But it could still mean that she used it to conceal a knife. As I recall, I did listen to uh, the one episode, I think it was The Witness. Didn't somebody say in there that there were a number of stray pack dogs that, that hung around and that it wasn't unusual for somebody to carry a stick or a knife because they felt that when they were walking around that track because they felt that it might be a risky thing not to have a weapon when those dogs were around. Yes, that's accurate. And that seems to still be true to this day. When I, Every time I've gone there, I, there's always at least one stray dog laying around somewhere. Okay. So that could be another reason why she would have kept a weapon with her. It may not have been just the recent events where she reported to her husband that she thought somebody was following her, right? Right. 
Her husband does say so, that that knife, as we d- dug deeper into some new files that we have, that she had started using that knife in her sewing room just shortly before the murder happened. He said just shortly before mm-hmm. she was using it, which makes me wonder if you know she wasn't actually using the giant butcher knife for sewing, but she had started carrying it, and that's where she was keeping it rather than in the kitchen where it belonged. Yeah, I just don't understand. I mean, what do you do with a butcher knife in the sewing room? That's exactly what I was thinking. Because I'm sure that there were uh, other more appropriate knives in the house. Why would you need, you know, a big butcher knife for that? Yeah, I thought that was odd. So that's what made me think that maybe, and he didn't give an exact time, but he said he had just recently realized she'd been using it in the sewing room. So that makes me think that shortly before this, she had probably started using it for something. And I'm thinking maybe possibly carrying it on those morning walks. Yeah, it's possible. Uh, I mean, what's you going to do, cut patterns with it? It just doesn't seem like that's the kind of knife that you would use for that. No, not at all. I also wanted to ask you what you thought about, as far as concealment goes, something that we've been uh, wrestling around with is if she was concealing the knife and not just carrying it out in the open. The idea of having it kind of tucked up a sleeve uh, was something that we had messed with if you had kind of held the knife by the butt and had the point going up kind of along the side of your arm, that it would be relatively easy to conceal it that way. In, in trying to compare it, because what I'm trying to do is trying to do a reconstruction somehow of how she ends up with this knife in her hands without any blood on it that we're aware of. It doesn't look like she got a piece of the offender or offenders at all. And so it almost seems to me as though the knife was drawn after it was too late. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why I thought it was a concealed weapon rather than something that was holding in her, that she was holding in her hand the whole time. In other words, you know, this is a dynamic scene. And you know, I know this is pretty graphic, but when you get stabbed fatally, it's not instant. Death is not like in the movies or TV where somebody gets shot or somebody gets stabbed and they're instantly dead. It takes time for somebody to bleed out or for organs to stop functioning and so forth. So she could have, and based on the position that she was found in and based on the different angles of attack for the stab wounds and locations of the stab wounds, I believe this took place over a period of time. And it's possible that she didn't, she wasn't able to get the knife out until very late in the attack. And that this is the reason why she didn't get a piece of the offender, that the knife, she wasn't able to access it quickly enough. And that's why I thought that it must have been concealed and probably in a place that took her some effort to get it out. And again, to me, that might be the small of the back tucked inside this band that uh, Emmy called a, a girdle. As far as the concealment, one thing that's been frustrating is, is we have conflicting reports between what the paramedics say, what the first witness on the scene says, and what the husband says uh, was told to him by the doctors as far as which hand she had the knife in. We have some that say left, some oh, that really? say right. So we don't know because that's, uh, to me, I wonder if it was you know like a cross draw after she was down. And one thing that I noticed too was as far as, I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in the mind of the offender, if she had that knife uh, not concealed, she's just carrying it in her hand, I feel like we would expect to see some sort of ligature or bruising on her wrists or arms. You would think that, I, I would think, and, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that you know, if a fender comes up to somebody carrying an 8-inch butcher knife, that the first thing that they're going to do is try to get control of that knife and that arm, uh, which would probably, I would think, would require yeah. some force. 
I just don't think it would end up in their hand again if, if the offender got it. Uh, I really think it was taken out later. I don't think, I would just say it's low probability that she had it tucked in her arm because that would have been very easy to get to. And I just think she would have used it defensively right away. Uh, whereas if her, let's say somebody came up behind her to choke her out, to control her or something, she might have both of her hands up to try to prevent choking. I mean, that's been first natural response. So they would, both of her hands would have been occupied. And plus, if somebody came up from behind, then they would have been blocking access. If they grabbed her there and pulled her in close, they would have been blocking access to the knife if it was in the small of her back. They wouldn't have known it was there, but she knew it was there. But that could be one reason why she didn't get it out in, in that part of the process. With respect to the inconsistencies between the EMTs and the first responders, the issue is that people who respond to a crime like that, like EMTs, um, although they do respond on a regular basis to crime victims and accident victims, it's still sort of a, an adrenaline-producing event, and their focus is not on documenting a crime scene. It's on saving the life of the person that's been hurt. And so I've found in cases, even, you know, big celebrated cases like Vince Foster, the White House counsel, who's found dead in Fort Marcy Park, um, that the EMTs, although they, they were trying to do their best to recount what they saw in terms of what the scene was, um, there were a lot of inconsistencies in what they said. Whereas the first responding officer, what he's trained to do is actually document what happens at the scene. Now, he may have been, I don't know, but he may have been inexperienced. He may not have been, you know, a longtime member of the force or whatever. So he may not have been great at that, but that's what his job is. And so I would tend to go with what that person said versus what the EMTs might have said. Sure. And and the issue here is that no one from law enforcement actually saw her there with the knife. She was already being loaded up. The police officers all had second and third hand information about that. Uh, it was, yeah. uh, you know, so they were talking to the witness that found her body compared to uh, the EMTs that were talking about where they saw where the knife was. But like you said, the EMT is not looking for that inf they're just look they're looking for injuries and trying to treat the patient. It was just tough to and it, it doesn't matter a whole heck of a lot, mostly because her son has still not gotten back with me and no one seems to know if she's right or left handed. So it, it doesn't have it, anything but, to do with it anyway right now. Right. But you know, you have to understand that when adrenaline is pumping, you can get tunnel vision. And you know, focusing on it's important to you what you have to do, and that is determining what the condition of somebody is when they're on the ground like that bleeding and determining how you might be able to save their life. And I think that was probably the MT's focus, and it should have been. But it's unfortunate that nobody took a photograph of the condition of a body at the time. And, you know, that is one of the reasons why this crime may not have been properly solved. Right. Of course, like what you're talking about, the adrenaline and coming, you know, that's obviously what I did for a living for 16 years. That's you're exactly right. You know, you show up when I would show up to a scene like that. My focus was to treat the patient uh, and not pay much attention to, you know, a little detail. You're, I mean, you, you, you kind of try to, but for the most part, especially a critical patient, it's all about the patient. And because of the fact that she was still at least presumably a viable patient, 
you know, it was load and go and she was gone before anybody, you know, so, so the police were having to investigate a crime scene with no body, which right. know, made it a lot more difficult. And yeah, I'm sure it did result in a lot of it. One thing that we do have that we didn't have last time you and I spoke is we still don't have any photographs or anything of the clothing, but we do have detectives notes from the follow-up detective in the cold case unit who went back and re-examined the clothing. He was looking to see if there was any drag marks or grass stain or scuff marks on the clothing, and there were not. His assessment seems to fit very well with yours, where he said that he believed the stabbing happened while she was on the ground because of the fact of the there were no blood drippings on her shoes, uh, no vertical blood drops on her legs of the pants. You know, there's blood on her pants, but not in the manner that you would see if she was standing upright. He made the assumption that I think may very well be incorrect that she was actually sitting on the ground during the attack. And he, and it says in his report that he believes that was the case because the buttocks and the very lower back area of the clothing were completely drenched in blood where most of the rest of the clothing was not. In my opinion, that would be expected if she, number one, ended up in the position she ended up in, which was her knee on her back with her knees up. Also, she had those right. two very deep stab wounds to the back of the leg and the buttock, which are areas that, especially if it happened to hit the femoral artery, would bleed profusely compared to the other wounds that were on her back, which were all, the I don't know if you remember, but the wounds on her back were yeah. all very shallow. Um, Superficial, yes. Yeah, I, and the thing is, I don't discount that she was on the ground at some point because I think she was kicking up when she was stabbed in the buttocks. So I think, you know, at some point she ended up on the ground, but I don't necessarily believe that that's where the attack started. It just doesn't make sense. And I do believe, as I said earlier, that this attack probably occurred over several minutes and in several locations. I don't think it was a an isolated attack at that one location. Uh, it seems because of all the changes in directionality and the and locations of stab wounds and I just believe that this scene was a dynamic and moving scene and that where she ended up was not where the attack commenced. Yeah, and I agree with that too. And based on that, we, we've looked further as we moved on with the case. I think I mentioned to you last time we talked, we spoke briefly about the white Z-28 Camaro uh, with the two witnesses that had observed a woman that morning being pulled into the Camaro by three or four people and then the Camaro peeling out around the corner. There seems to be some at least potential validity to that story. Number one, I spoke with that witness. Um, I've interviewed him. And, you know, after speaking with him, the, the guy has no reason to lie about it to begin with. You know, he was never in it for any reward. Uh, and I, I broke this down, and I don't want to take a whole lot of time explaining why, but it, there were things like, even if the aunt who was with him was lying, maybe for reward money or Crime Stoppers money or something like that, I don't see why she would involve a fifth grader, bring him into the story, and have him also be part of the witness that's telling the story, who's maintained that story. You know, when I spoke to him now, his details are a little off, but he, he says, yeah, he remembered, and he remembered that next morning, his mom telling him there was a woman killed right there. You guys probably saw this woman being killed. There were just a, a whole lot of reasons why I think the guy's telling the truth that that abduction... Yeah, and... And the inconsistencies, uh, after all this time, given his age at the time that it occurred, I don't think that's unusual at all. I mean, memory is a malleable thing, and, you know, our, our brains are organic. 
they're not machines and they don't just digitally record what we see. There's all sorts of interpretation and filling in gaps and so forth that happens. And there's even theories that every time you recall a memory, you change it in some way. Mm -hmm. And so over time, that could be pretty significant. Yeah. So I went back and looked at his trial testimony and compared that to which I'll get into in a moment, which is the fact that I interviewed the star witness. But when I interviewed him, or excuse me, when I read his trial testimony, he doesn't have all these indications of deception. He's not like filling in gaps in a story. If he doesn't remember, he just says he doesn't remember. You know, they ask him what kind of clothes she was wearing. And he says, I don't know, it was like pants and a jacket. And they ask what color. He said, I don't know, maybe it was like gray or white. Well, it was actually light blue. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I read it as though he was trying to recall an event that he actually witnessed and experienced and comes pretty close as opposed to the brother, the, the star witness, when I interviewed him. And, and I guess you tell me what you think about this. So you recall the events, you know, there his original story and affidavit are that him and his brother went for a jog. Brother sees woman, grabs woman by the throat. They're screaming and yelling at each other, tells the brother to leave. He leaves, runs away. And, you know, Jesse supposedly stabs him, stabs her, and then runs back to the apartment in a bloody T-shirt and then leaves. That's his story. So when I confront him and interview him about this, shortly, it was like the week after you and I spoke last, he tells Mm -hmm. me, oh, yeah, he remembers the event. He says that they were out going for a jog, and the woman was in her housecoat walking her dog. And Jesse, you know, the, the other pieces of the story were the same, that Jesse grabbed her, told him to get out of there. He runs away. But the, the, that she was in a housecoat, she was walking her dog. I asked him, you know, what do you remember about the dog? And he, oh, it was just a little dog. You know, he had kind of details about the dog, the fact that she was in a housecoat rather than a blue jogging suit. Uh, change some other major details like, you know, his testimony at trial. The reason his testimony was powerful is because Jesse came immediately back to the apartment covered in blood and said that, you know, he had just killed somebody where uh, his story to me now is that Jesse disappeared for days, but then showed up in a T-shirt covered in blood from days before. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, obviously that, you know, that's just ridiculous. Why would he keep a bloody T-shirt on for days? That just makes no sense. Right. And Kia wasn't walking a dog, right? Did she even have a dog? She did have a dog, but she wasn't walking her dog. But she walked, from what I understand now, she used to walk her dog with her husband in the afternoons, which would have went right past their apartment on a regular basis. Right. He's blending pieces of memory together, at the very least, but he may very well have just been fabricating it completely. And so in time, he, he forgot about what he lied about before. That was my assessment, and again, like I said, without without spending a whole lot of time in it, my assessment is that the guy with the white Z28 Camaro was telling the truth. Troy uh, is very much lying. Matter of fact, I, I eventually, it got so ridiculous in my interview with him, I just told him, you're lying. I know you're lying, so I, I don't even want to question that, but I want to question, why, why are you lying? And he looked me in the eyes and said, well, this has just always been my story. Oh, really? Yeah. He never said, wow. you're, you're full of shit, and that's what happened. I was there, I remember it. All he ever said was, this was my story. I've always, why would I change my story? He kept saying. Yeah, as opposed to this is what happened. Mm -hmm. I'm just telling you the truth. Those are two very different statements. I mean, it's actually become a joke. You know, that's my story and I'm sticking to it has been sort of popularized in the media as one way that people lie. So it's kind of uh, interesting that he chose those, those particular words to say, you know, to, when you get when you confront him about lying, to say that 
it really doesn't stand up as an honest, truthful disclosure. Right. Yeah. And and I picked that up too. And there and there's a lot more, but in a nutshell, I don't believe Troy anymore. So I'm pretty sure that his story didn't happen. So now we're kind of shifted into trying to figure out who might have actually committed this crime. Um, because, you know, the I don't know if you knew this or not at that time, but the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas has actually taken Jesse's case now, along with the Innocence Project of Texas. So as far as that side of his case, I'm, you know, got the interviews, got all that, turned it all over to them. They're taking things away as far as Jesse's innocence. And so at this point, I'm trying to figure out who might have actually committed the murder, which then takes us back to this white Z-28 Camaro scenario. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You had said right. that you think we'd be looking at young, criminally inexperienced offender or offenders, and that we would have a dynamic crime scene that's probably started somewhere else and ended there in the woods. That seems yeah. to fit in, in basics on paper with the Camaro, with the abduction into the car. But if we really get into the brass tacks of it, as far as the injuries, um, we're, we're talking about a two-door car, not a lot of space in it. Do you have any thoughts on how that might play out or if that's possible that she was brought into the car and then got back out of the car? Well, I don't know. Uh, if you could refresh my recollection about what the witness said and what when you interviewed him recently, what was his... Uh, where did he leave off in this event? In other words, he couldn't have seen the entire event. He didn't see her getting killed. He didn't see her getting to the, the middle of that field near the schoolyard. So at what point did he witness up to it? They, they were trying to drag her into the car. They succeeded in dragging her into the car. His recollection is that they succeeded in dragging her into the car. So they're driving around looking for his cousin that morning. And they pull up and they see... At the time, he's had several, uh, three or four guys that were dragging this woman as she's kind of kicking and screaming into the white. She's, he specifically remembered the big white or the big Z28 painted on the side of the car that she, they were dragging her in. And then the car took off. And he, in, in one detail he had in his uh, statement that stuck out to me was he said, when the car peeled around the corner, it hit a tire which didn't make any sense to me until I got the crime scene photos and looked at the crime scene photos where they took a shot down that street that morning, and there's a tire mm -hmm. sitting in the middle of the road right there. Oh, really? Yeah. There you go. That one detail does a tremendous amount to actually validate his story. The fact is that that would have been a very difficult piece of information for him to just pick up and attach to this uh, to a false memory. You know, the fact is that if that tire was there, 
yeah, he was driving around in that neighborhood, but why would that become a focal point of his story unless it, it actually happened? I mean, it's such a, as you said, it, it didn't make any sense to you until you saw it in the picture. Right. Well, I'm pretty sure he didn't see that same picture, did he? No, no. And he told his story to police a month later. And keep in mind, he's not from this neighborhood. He just happened to be in that yeah. neighborhood looking for his cousin with his aunt. So all that together, that was the, that was the big red flag to me. Like, oh, my God, he really did witness this. There's a freaking tire in the road right there. Yeah, there you go. So, yeah, so then I would tend to believe that she did actually get in the car. And this goes to the criminal inexperience. If she was actually dragged into this car, kicking and screaming, and, you know, they're driving around, they hit a tire. I mean, that could disorient the driver. She could be kicking, you know, driver, whoever, you know, he's trying to drive. It's possible that she, you know, kicked somebody and, you know, was able to get the door open and get out. And they stopped the car and followed her. That would be consistent with my interpretation of the wound pattern on her, that, that this was a moving and dynamic scene, and it didn't happen just in one place. And, you know, somebody owns a Z28, it's probably, you know, a very special car to them, and they may not want to be stabbing up somebody in the car and getting blood all over the place, you know? So they may have let her out because she was causing too much trouble in there. Right, and that's that's what I wonder if maybe that's when the knife came out. Now, this is one one hypothesis I've been rolling around with just recently is because there's also a, seems to be a lack of a lot of like bruising and stuff on her body. Was what mm-hmm. if Jesse the the kid's name was Jesse James uh, Swindell that that witnessed this? What if he saw them trying to drag her into the car, and what he didn't see because the car was between him and them was her get away and shoot through the opening in the fence right there and her take off running across that field, and maybe one or two of the guys follows her, and the other guys get in the car and squeal around the corner to head her off. To me, that almost seems more likely than her getting in and out. Just be, you know, the Z28, the two-door, it just seems, and he's describing like three or four guys. It just seems like if she's in there, she's like piled on top of the windows open? We don't know. Right. So she could have kicked and squirmed away out the window, but... You're right. I mean, I mean, I would have to in detail ask him about what he saw. But the the problem is that your brain fills in gaps in memory. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if he didn't see, he just he may have assumed and then created the memory about that. The fact that she was in the car. So I don't know that you're going to get an accurate representation of that today. However, you know, it would be interesting to know what exactly he can describe about it. Well, how did they get her in the car and what did, did he hear? I mean, I wouldn't ask him these specific questions, but I'd wonder in his narrative back, would he talk about, I heard the door slamming, I heard her say this, I heard, you know, I, I saw this happen. Those details are going to be important. Yeah, and he honestly, now when I spoke with him, doesn't even remember that it was a Z28. He said he remembers it being a white car. He doesn't have a whole lot of right. There's he just he's not going to have those details anymore. He did tell me that the reason that they didn't call the police or anything, as as he had said at trial, was we didn't know it was like that. Is I think it was his quote. When I asked him what he meant, he said we figured it was like one of those guys' girlfriend, and she was like drunk or something, and they were dragging her. Like we didn't think they were killing the woman. We just saw it and we're like, holy crap, they're just dragging that woman. And look at that, you know, and drove away. Yeah. Well. I don't know if you're going to be able to know for sure. I would focus on the details in his statement at the time. 
they may be a little more accurate than, I mean, because they were closer to being contemporaneous, uh, even though they were a month later. They're just not going to be very specific or accurate or precise at this late date. That's just That's kind of lost information. Right. So what we did then moving forward or what I've been working on is once I determined that one, Troy was lying and two, I think he's Jesse Swindell is telling the truth about this car was the car seems to be the lead. And so we started going through police notes about names who were mentioned. It's a long, tangled web. But eventually we have landed on a group of guys that had a white Z28 Camaro in that neighborhood at that time. The guys, they're almost like a... So this was this murder occurred in Pleasant Grove, and everyone from Pleasant Grove refers to themselves as Grove Rats. However, at this particular time, there was a particular group of, quote, Grove Rats that um, kind of considered themselves almost a gang. And I actually spoke to an African-American gang member that was in that neighborhood at that time. Uh, he was part of the, the Crips, I think he said. And he was telling me how the Grove Rats, there was this group of them that were, they were kind of like white supremacists and they were trying to build up steam, but they never just really amounted to anything because the black gangs were moving in and then later the Hispanic gangs and they kind of were doing their own thing and not paying attention. But It seems like what you're describing to me is what we would call a crew. They're not really a gang, but they're a group of guys who kind of hang together and sort of disorganized, no real leadership, but just going around doing things that uh, most of the time are going to be against the law. And I just wonder, you, you said they, they were white supremacists. How did Jesse describe them? And how did he describe the woman that was being dragged in? Did he add race to the mix or not? He did not add race to the mix of the victim. He said he wasn't sure. He thinks her hair was dark. He described in the affidavit the group of people dragging her in as being uh, a mix of African-American and white. I think he said there was like two of each or three of one, one of the other. He kind of mixed those up in, as the stories went along, which was, to me, doesn't fit with white supremacists. So as I'm, as I'm digging into this group of people, the kind of ringleader of this, I like your term, crew, has a brother who is now this guy this guy I'm speaking of I have photos of him wearing Ku Klux Klan jackets you know like patches like okay. with membership on them but his brother yeah. is mixed race half black half white and I don't even know what to do with that and another guy that they hung out with was mixed race also half black half white I will say this much there's definitely a phenomenon in which people who are racist believe certain traits and characteristics attached to certain races that they don't like, but they may know an individual who they say, but I still like this one. And even though that person falls into that same race that they hate. And I think that especially if one of those people that you supposedly hate happens to be a relative, that might be, you know, sort of the excuse to allow that person into this quote gang. And as far as that person is concerned, being of mixed race, may want to fit in better by saying, well, I'm not all the way like that, or at least I'm part white, and therefore I want to help these guys get rid of the other races that are invading our space. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's completely inconsistent with the facts based on, on the information you have. 
Right. And and when when I looked at it, these guys race definitely does seem to play very heavily into especially back then. The one the one guy is really still to this day makes makes YouTube videos of old pictures playing, you know, heavy metal music from back in the they're just it's just odd. You and all of your experience dealing with criminals, I guess you're a good person to ask this question. The teardrop tattoos and back in the nineties, what are your thoughts on the meaning behind those? Teardrops are supposed to be for a drop for each person you kill. Okay, that's what I thought. Uh, because this particular yeah. individual has four of them on his cheek. There's another one in this group that was shot and killed. Uh, th- these guys were into, uh, sounds like, dealing meth, a lot of thefts, a lot of other things. There's actually, uh, Pleasant Grove has been pretty popular in uh, the first 48 and Forensic Files and some other TV shows for a lot of the meth dealing and, and murders that have happened there over the years. But this guy's brother was killed uh, a couple of years ago, shot to death. And then I was noticing people's comments on there saying, you know, you're Grove, Grove Rats for life, and we've done a lot of things that we can never talk about. And it just as I'm just reading through, one of the guys on his Facebook profile has one page of interest, and it's Asian lingerie models. As I've just looked through this, it just it just starts to send kind of the chills down my spine as far as, you know, it, I mean, it could be complete red herrings, but this group of people we ran into that were in the neighborhood at the time seemed like they were causing a lot of trouble and possibly killed some people. You know, and then at the same time, the same group of guys are all over the Internet taking photos in front of a white Z28 Camaro. And so it just it just seems like a whole heck of a lot of coincidences. And I know how you feel about coincidences. Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things that it's a great lead and I think you should pursue it vigorously. I think that you might be able to get uh, registration records from back in the day and find out if there are any others in the neighborhood. Chances are you you might find one or more, but the opportunity or the possibility of finding another one with a group of guys associated with it, more than one guy, right, and that are into sort of this white supremacy kind of thing, which can be consistent with this murder, as well as teardrop tattoos, which is consistent with murder. I think the the probability of you finding all those things with another owner of this car, of this same kind of of car, is probably pretty low. But I think you should search and try to determine whether there are. And then the other thing is, what would be great is if you could get a hold of arrest photos of this guy with the four teardrops now and see when those teardrops appeared. I mean, typically these guys, you know, they get arrested a lot when they're into this kind of stuff. And hopefully there's generations of arrest photos. You might be able to document when that first teardrop showed up and whether or not shortly after her murder, a teardrop shows up. So I think that that might be something that would be also a corroborative fact. Yeah. Now, is that typically, behaviorally speaking, when people get those, I'm sure they're not all the same, but you know, do people usually keep those as like a, a notch on a bedpost or is it typically, you know, an afterthought, hey, I'm up to four, maybe I should do some teardrops now? Yeah, I would say that once you start doing it, that you do it whenever. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. it's bragging rights. It's literally showing off um, how badass you are. And I think that, for example, let's say you know, Kiao was their first kill. Uh, it may be a while before he decides, you know, he calms down from that because he wasn't criminally sophisticated if he did it at the time. And when he calms down from that, I think that's when, you know, you might start seeing a much, a much more bragging um, 
you may not have seen that immediately because, you know, it's a big deal when you kill somebody for the first time. But obviously at some point he's decided that he wants to brag that he's killed four people. Yeah, and, you know, so age-wise, this guy would have been kind of mid-20s at the time, and he's the one that owns the car, uh, we think. But the group of guys he was hanging with were all about four or five years younger than him. He may have been the one behind the wheel. As far as the criminal sophistication or, you know, whatever, I think he would, this this particular guy was the eldest of the group um, and likely would mm-hmm. have been the one driving the car, not out committing the actual act if they were involved in the act. Well, if you, based on your theory, if he was driving and, you know, hit this tire, he, he's probably pissed off and maybe he went around the corner to cut her off. And that might be when he went out and killed her. He may, you know, he could have gotten out of the car and done the deed himself. He's certainly bragging that he's capable of it. So right, you know, I wouldn't discount that. Some other information we have, too, that's been new developments. The hour, the the seven o'clock to seven or seven thirty ish hour, that seems such an odd time. Uh, we have discovered since you and I spoke last that summer school was indeed in session that day, which started at seven fifty a.m. Kiao was seen by school workers who were out. You know, as kids were showing up for the day, they were outside. There were four different workers out on the school grounds that saw her walking that morning. And then the next thing they know, as they said, right when the school bell rang, which was 7.50, they saw all of the the ambulance and the fire trucks and police all pulling up on the other side of the school. So they ran over there, and that's when that, that's how her body was identified. The principal ran over there and said, oh, my God, that's Kiao. She works in the lunchroom and got a hold of her husband. So one thing is there would have been kids in the neighborhood uh, coming to summer school that morning. Uh, this occurred about 20 minutes before school started. Also, and we're still trying to verify this, but as of right now, and the workers I've talked to seem to think that it would have been the same pattern back then, summer school ran through the last week of July, and it only ran Monday through Thursday. So this crime occurred on the last Thursday of July, um, meaning it's likely, it seems, that the murder occurred on the very last day of summer school. I don't know how you, well, you think about all of that as we kind of piece that together with everything else that we have. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, some of these guys, as you described them, are young enough to still be in school. But I don't know that that really has a significance in terms of what they were doing. Well, obviously, these guys had nefarious motives. They, they, they were going, they were up to something bad whether they were going to 
abduct and sexually assault her or they plan to kill her right from the start, I don't know. But, I mean, it sounds like this is just, you know, this was just out of control for them. They they didn't do a good job. As I said, one of the reasons why I think it was young, criminally inexperienced person or people doing this is because of the lack of control. I mean, it's obvious they had a weapon, but they did not control this victim. And that's why it was such a dynamic and ongoing crime scene. It just doesn't strike me as something that was very well planned. And therefore, I don't know that this was the kind of thing that they planned it around school or whatever. I don't know if you're theorizing that this might have been the last day they would be around that neighborhood, that they, you know, would see her all the time. Do you know where this D-28 was registered during that time? I don't know specifically. I don't have access to those records. Uh, I do know where the individual that is always pictured with the car lives. So we we kind of have an idea uh, of where that particular Z28 might have been registered, but no official registration, which is not right. exactly in this neighborhood. But what we discovered was this group of people all went to a different high school. Uh, this this happened at Grady Spruce mm-hmm. High School. These guys went to Samuel High School, which was a little bit on the other side of Pleasant Grove. However, summer, at summer school, Samuel High School didn't have a summer school. Anybody from Samuel that needed summer school attended Spruce a summer school. So it would have been, if these guys were part of that, which we're trying to find out some records from summer school right now, uh, they would have been traveling from the other side of town into this neighborhood. And it just, I wasn't even, even developing really a theory yet, but it just, I started thinking maybe the white car stalking her always in the mornings, always at seven o'clock in the morning, could have been, you know, a older brother dropping brother off for, for summer school, cruising around the neighborhood, maybe somebody selling drugs to the high school students before they start school. You know, guys, you know, meeting up in the parking lot and going for a ride to smoke a joint before school that, you know, they were just continually passing her uh, or coming into contact with her because of the timing in the summer school and when she walked. And then I wondered if maybe if that was the case, if it was something where they had built up this desire to attack her for whatever reason uh, during the the stalking behavior, if the fact that this was the last day of summer school that they were going to be there, if that could have been any kind of trigger or if that all could just be just coincidence. I think it's reasonable to consider it. Um, I just don't know for sure that we're going to be able to put a pin on it and, and actually determine whether whether or not it was, unless you get some kind of interview with these guys and ask them the questions. But um, but I think it's reasonable to say that, that that could be how they discovered her and her pattern of, of walking in the morning. And I think it could be a, a reasonable explanation for why they chose this day. But I don't think that anybody in that car was going to school that day. And so, you know, if you could get the records for the summer school and find out who didn't show up for class on that last day, that might be interesting as well. Right. We thought about that, too. And, and we're just got to figure out now. And again, that'll be something that I'm pretty sure someone will need a subpoena to get that information. But we did. Uh, I did discover during that last trip that those records should at least still exist if we can get our hands on them. And so I guess for right now, Jim, I mean, we're almost an hour into this, so I will kind of call it for right now. I appreciate it. Maybe as we move on again, we can touch base with you again. I did want to run sure. one thing by you, if you if you don't mind real quick. It has nothing to do with this case. It's about last season's case. You know, we're okay. still kind of working on it behind the scenes. And there, there's something that's, you know, I, Laura at some point was going to work on doing a profile, but I know she got busy and you guys got busy and it never happened. But uh, you were familiar somewhat with last season's case, right? The woman that was found nude with her throat slashed in a trailer home. Right. 
So, and what I wanted to talk about was some post-offense behavior and just real quick, what you think about it. So she, she's killed in her, in her home. Her cousin slash landlord lives right next to her in a house. She's on a trailer house in the back of her property. And the offender, after killing her, closes and locks her doors. They actually took the time to nail a towel up over the front door window, where if someone were to look in, they would see her body right there. Uh, still left mm-hmm. her body laying right there, naked in the in the living room, bled out. They make sure all the blinds are pulled, nailed up a towel up to that front door, and then took her car and, I believe, personally pushed it, but in any case, moved it about 30 feet up to behind the trailer to where it couldn't be seen from the road or from the neighbor's house from the front yard, which was her cousin. So I know this was obvious attempt at temporary concealment, mm-hmm. but... What I don't understand is what could be the purpose in that for someone? I mean, it's most definitely it's going to when the cousin comes home from work in the morning, she's not going to realize that Elnora's home, but she's going to realize it, right, you know, it gives, in a few hours. Yeah, but it would give the person who did it those few hours that delayed discovery to establish an alibi and make themselves scarce and put distance between them and the crime scene. So, I mean, why would somebody take that time if they had no known relationship to this victim at all? If they were a complete stranger, they would have just walked out and not spent another second in there. But to have closed all the blinds, which may or may not have been closed anyway, but you're pretty certain that this towel has been tacked up to the door and has never been like that before. It's, this is absolutely an anomaly. Yeah, well, the curtain that was on the door had been ripped off during the struggle and was laying on the ground. And then they went back Got and it. nailed so the towel. Know that it was done. Right. Okay, great. Well, that's very good. Yeah, so that that person spent time to prevent somebody from looking in. Was there any blood on that towel? Was there any other evidence that forensic <laughs> evidence on it? We could talk for three more hours on the forensic evidence from that crime scene. Uh, short, okay. short answer is, is no, that none that they found. Yeah, but behaviorally, it's spending more time, which increases dramatically the chances of that person getting caught. So if that towel was put up there and the scene had been cleaned up significantly, I would say, oh, it was just it was done as a practical means of preventing somebody from looking in while that person is doing the cleaning. But the fact that I mean, I remember that crime scene, it was a bloody mess and, and there wasn't didn't seem to be any kind of attempt to clean it up or stage it so that it looked like it was an accident, for example, or something like that, or a break-in. So I think the person was let in. I think the person had some known relationship to the victim and spent the time nailing up that towel and also pushing the car behind the trailer so that that would give them a slight edge in terms of time before the discovery was made, and that would give them an opportunity to create an alibi and give them distance between themselves and the body that they created and that makes a, a lot of sense it just, what just confused me is if we're looking you know because i i agree with you I, I my my assessment is that we're looking at someone with a known relationship with the victim and probably someone that was known to be supposed to be with her that night and it was like mm-hmm. well it's going to delay it and i guess you make it but you know they're i don't think the attack was planned i guess if i'll put it that way so to me for them to have the wherewithal of mind uh i'm going to cover this up to or buy myself some time 
And the big thing for I was wondering with you is, and it sounds like you've answered that, is is that something you typically see even in a non-premeditated attack, something that happened in the spur of the moment for the offender to think, I need to do something to buy myself some time? Yeah, I think it's something that happens in the moment. And if this person were an organized offender who had pre-planned this attack, I think you would have seen a lot more control and a lot less of a just a bloody, crazy crime scene. I mean, obviously, the fact that the curtain was torn off the front door is an indicator of the fact that this victim was probably trying to leave, probably trying to get away, and had to be retrieved by the offender. And then I think they just were doing their best to cover up the tracks. I mean, had they been calm, cool, and collected, they may have you know, bought the implements necessary to commit this crime with them. They would have understood that having a victim uh, laying around in, in a bloody mess is going to be discovered relatively quickly, and they wanted to delay it as much as they could in a, in a short period of time. But, you know, if this had been a planned attack, they might have pushed the car back there, taken the body out of the, out of the trailer and put it in the trunk and drove it away. And that way it would have been a much longer delay before that body was discovered. And they could have, had they not left the bloody crime scene, they could have maybe even made it look like she deliberately left town. And it might have been months before somebody decided, well, this is actually a murder. So this is not very well planned. And I do think this is after the fact, uh, post-defense behavior that was sort of done in a panic to try to cover tracks because there were tracks. Right. Completely unnecessary if there were no tracks. And by that, I mean no known relationship and no reason for somebody to think that this offender was actually with her that night. Right. And I imagine, too, someone with bloody clothes and things like that needs some time to deal with all that. Yep. All right. Well, well, Jim, I'm not going to keep any longer on that one. I was just something that's bugging me. I've been meaning to ask you for a long time. And, and you know, a, a, you know, a good way to, to solve this problem about you guys being too busy is maybe Real Crime Profile can just take the murder of Elnora Griffin as your next case. And then we'll knock, <laughs> it, <laughs> knock it all out at once. All right. Well, let's talk to Laura and Lisa about that. OK, well, that is good enough for today. And thank you so much, Jim. Yeah. Looking forward to hearing more about this case. I think you're making tremendous strides, and I think you got a really good, solid lead here. I hope it comes to fruition. Well, I hope so, too. And uh, as soon as we get any more information, we'll be back in touch. All right, we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. And I do want to issue a huge thank you to Jim Clementi for taking the time to talk to me. I love getting his input on any case anytime we get the chance to because he just has such a wealth of knowledge and experience from investigating thousands of these cases over the last several decades. Make sure you check out and download Jim's brand new podcast that's launching this weekend, Best Case, Worst Case. And you can hear more about that on this past Friday follow-up. But as for now, we're going to close out the show and next week we're going to hear from even more witnesses in the Jesse Eldridge case. Truth and Justice is a production of New Beginning Incorporated. Our executive producer is Mike Bussing. All music for the show is created and scored by PutThemInASong.com. I want to thank Chris Brinkley from SylviaConsultants.com for designing, creating, and maintaining our website. Thank you to Tate Krupa for designing and creating our logo. I want to thank our transcription team, Desiree Dunn, Sarah Hoyt, and Sarah Mueller for transcribing the episodes. And as always, a big thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. Stay in touch with us via email, like our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Truth Justice Pod. 
However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.